I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly, Eyes on Texas. Both President Biden and former President Trump visit the U.S. southern border in what could be a preview of the 2024 election. Pro-life proposal. Lawmakers are set to reintroduce a measure to limit abortion. We're on Capitol Hill. Crackdown on Nicaragua. Human rights experts backed by the United Nations release new findings on the Ortega regime. Plus, right and wrong. Jay Richards tells us about his new book on defending Judeo-Christian values in our modern culture. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Oswald. Our top story tonight, the crisis at the southern border takes a spotlight today in Texas. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are holding competing events. Both sides agree there is a problem, but neither side agrees on the solution. And Republicans say President Biden could do much more. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, this marks President Joe Biden's second trip to the border since he became president. Now, the White House says he wanted to listen to border agents and get a feel for the situation on the ground. But critics call it nothing more than a photo op. President Joe Biden departs the White House on a trip to Texas to visit the southern border. Air Force One landing hours later in the Rio Grande Valley city of Brownsville, where border crossings are down lately. The president arriving there, he says, to meet with border and immigration officials and discuss the need for Congress to move forward on a bipartisan border security deal, adding that it's time to get it done. President Biden is not alone. His biggest Republican rival, former President Donald Trump, also traveled to the border today, appearing just over 300 miles away in Eagle Pass, in the corridor that's currently seeing the largest number of crossings. Nice weather, beautiful day, but a very dangerous border. We're going to take care of it. Thank you. The White House press secretary says President Biden put forth a comprehensive immigration policy three years ago. And what happened over and over again is that Republicans kept on getting in the way. They kept on rejecting any effort that we asked to get more resources. But Republican lawmakers say President Biden is failing to use the resources he already has. You have the ability, the policies that were there when you got into office to be able to stop this problem and you haven't done it. Instead, you were down on our border for a photo op. He stopped construction on the wall. He halted deportations. He ceded operational control to the cartels and the traffickers. And he did everything he could to incentivize, incentivize illegal immigration. Now, the church seeks to balance the care for migrants with the need for national security. The Texas Catholic Conference of Bishops recently wrote, quote, The Catholic Church in Texas remains committed to praying and working for a secure border to protect the vulnerable and for just immigration solutions to protect all human life. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. All right, thank you, Owen. Let's bring in Father Rafael Garcia. He is the pastor of Sacred Heart Church in El Paso, Texas, which, of course, is close to the U.S. southern border. Um, Father, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, first, I want to get your reaction to both President uh, Biden and former President Trump visiting the U.S.-Mexico border on the same day. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, no doubt the situation at the border is uh, is an important one. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes in the media it's portrayed more dramatically than what it is. It's just that the points of entry become sort of like funnel, uh, funnel points for people that come in through the land. But uh, 
But I think, you know, we've had a shelter here since December of 2022 at our parish. And we see families coming, people that are fleeing violence, fleeing just fighting for their lives and their families' lives. So, uh, you know, it's it, there's a human need and it's an international need. And of course, the uh, solution or a lot of the solutions have to be at the countries of origin that they're just, people are living in very desperate situations. We hear stories after stories, what people go through. So, uh, you know, they, they have a right, according to Catholic social teaching, if you cannot find safety uh, in your own homeland, you have a right to migrate. And that's why we experience constantly, people are just trying to find a place that's secure to be with their families yeah. and find work. Yeah, and Father, tell us about that. I mean, you, you work with migrants every day on a daily basis. Um, you tell us a little bit about the situations they're facing. Um, talk to us maybe a little more about that. And how many people are you seeing? How many are you helping? Well, our shelter here, we usually have a, an average of about 120 persons per week, people that have been processed through the authorities and they have documentation to continue the process to get an immigration hearing at some point. But it's a very, it's a real human crisis, a real human need. And uh, I think one of the important things is we as church or people of faith have to change the narrative of what's being portrayed out there. In other words, people that we see in any group are gonna have problematic people, but in, these are families, just like our families here in the USA, people are trying to survive. I mean, the threats in some of the countries, Central America and South America are just horrible. They really are killing people. So uh, so uh, there's no doubt I, I would do the same thing to, to flee and find a place that we save for, for me and my family. So uh, they definitely have a right to migrate, which is also the second principle of Catholic social teaching. You cannot find stability in your own country. People have a right to migrate. So uh, it's, it's a real crisis and as you know this is not only us in our border here this is happening worldwide and uh so it's a it's a major challenge for us as church to respond according to who we are as church you know that matthew 25 very clearly tells us you know whatever you did to the least of my brothers and sisters you did to me and that's why that was a motivation of for opening our shelter we had people on the streets it was winter of 2022 and uh, we just said we have to other people on the streets with children and we just had to open our building, which was a, a gymnasium building and we started a shelter really with nothing. So God has provided and we are doing the work of the gospel. Well, Father, thank you so much for what you're doing, for speaking to us about the situation and, and what you're seeing down there. It's a very important part of the conversation. So we appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, the Supreme Court says that it will hear a case on whether former President Trump is immune from prosecution in his 2020 election interference case. Arguments are set for late April. This could push a trial start date later into this year or even next year. The nation's high court will consider for the first time whether an ex-president is immune from prosecution for alleged crimes in office. Former President Trump says prosecutor Jack Smith is rushing the case for political reasons. And coming up later in the newscast, analysis. At the former president's Supreme Court case with Derek Muller, law professor at the University of Notre Dame. On Capitol Hill, congressional leaders promised that they will have a long-term 2024 budget by the end 
of next month. First, they're using a short-term funding bill to keep the government open past this weekend. The House passed the continuing resolution this afternoon, and it's also expected to move quickly through the Senate. The president is expected to sign it before tomorrow's midnight deadline. Leaders say that they will hold votes on six long-term appropriation bills next week. Our President Joe Biden tells EWTN that he opposes Catholic Church teaching on in vitro fertilization or IVF. The president earlier slammed the recent Alabama court ruling that determined frozen embryos are children. And today, as President Biden left for Texas, EWTN News Nightly White House correspondent Owen Jensen asked the president about his position. Mr. President, the Alabama ruling I want to ask you about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says IVF is immoral and wrong because it destroys countless human embryos. What do you say to that? I don't agree with that position. On tonight, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in a call to action is urging Catholics to tell Congress tiny preborn lives are at stake, adding, please tell your members of Congress to oppose bills and resolutions that claim to protect these problematic rights to IVF and other assisted reproductive technologies that cause the death of countless human embryos and violate human dignity. In Alabama, lawmakers in the Alabama legislature have passed an amendment to give doctors who provide IVF civil and criminal immunity for any death or damage to embryos. This comes on the heels of the state's Supreme court ruling that frozen embryos are human beings. The measure will now head to the governor's desk, who has voiced approval for upholding in vitro fertilization treatments in the state. And while the Alabama Supreme Court's decision on frozen embryos has captured the headlines recently, the abortion issue remains at the forefront of national debate. Some pro-life lawmakers who have been leading the charge to limit abortions are ramping up their efforts. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with that story. Good evening. After the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe in 2022, the pro-life movement moved into high gear, with lawmakers moving to limit abortions. Back then, Senator Lindsey Graham announced that he was proposing a bill to ban abortions after 15 weeks. I've chosen to, to craft legislation that I think is eminently reasonable in the eyes of the world, and I hope the American people, at 15 weeks, pretty much strong majority of Americans believe abortion should be the exception, not the rule. That bill failed to gain traction in part because of the midterm elections. Now Senator Graham says he's going to reintroduce the exact same bill once again. The bill leaves in place state laws that are more protective of human life, prohibit doctors from performing abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, and it includes exceptions for rape, incest, or risk to a mother's life. Senator Graham tells me it's a good faith effort to meet abortion advocates halfway. Should you um, have any limits on abortion anytime, anywhere, anyhow, I think you should at an appropriate time in the birthing process. And 15, 16 weeks is where most of Europe's at. So I welcome that debate. But Democrats are unmoved. Senator Graham is going to be bringing back the 15-week abortion ban. He's going to introduce it next week. Your, th your thoughts about that? I hope that the American people will realize who's really uh, taking away a woman's right to choose. And it is not the Democrats. It's the Republicans who are doing everything they can to impose these kinds of restrictions. Democrats are absolutely committed to doing everything, everything we can to protect women, families, reproductive freedom. Republicans will learn. When it comes to attacks on personal freedoms, 
the American people do not easily forget. Senator Josh Hawley says people should not be fooled by Democrats' rhetoric. Let's be clear on what it is, which is to have abortion on demand imposed in all 50 states. That's what they want. They've repeatedly tried to pass that bill here on the floor of the Senate. I'm absolutely opposed to that. Meanwhile, Congressman Alex Mooney and 125 Republican co-sponsors have introduced the Life Begins a Conception Act, which Democrats claim undercuts Republicans' pro-life position because the bill does not include a carve-out for IVF. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in the hot seat today answering questions before the Armed Services Committee. He explained why no one knew, including the president, about his recent hospitalization due to complications from a prostate cancer procedure. There was never any lapse in authorities or in command and control. At all times, either I or the deputy secretary was in a position to conduct the duties of my office. But we did have a breakdown in notifications during my January stay at Walter Reed, and that is sharing my location and why I was here. Secretary Austin says that he and his staff did not handle it correctly. He went to the hospital on January 1st. His deputy and the White House were not told until January 4th. A Pentagon review said that his staff was hesitant to share information because of privacy concerns. Secretary Austin told lawmakers that new safeguards are in place to prevent this from happening again. Well, the wildfires raging across the state of Texas in the Texas panhandle have now become the largest in state history. The nearly 1,700-square-mile blaze has destroyed everything in its path. The biggest thing we lost was our grass. Um, we did lose some cattle. Um, fortunately, it wasn't as bad as what you would think or what we had thought it would be. <clears throat> so it's just, uh, you know, it's it takes... It takes uh, quite a while to regain your, your resource, your grass. Firefighters have made little progress in controlling the blaze, but are hoping that low temperatures with rain and snow in the forecast could help. The fire has crossed into Oklahoma and is 3% contained. All right, turning now to the Middle East, a horrific day in Gaza. According to witnesses, Israeli Defense Forces opened fire on civilians as they waited for food aid trucks. The IDF released this footage right here, writing in a statement, the Palestinian crowd attacked the trucks, and as a result, dozens were killed from overcrowding crowding and trampling. More than 100 people were killed and over 700 were injured. The shooting drew widespread condemnation from Palestinian leaders, Arab leaders and international aid groups. Since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war, it is reported that more than 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in the fighting. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including high-stakes arguments, analysis on former President Trump's immunity case at the Supreme Court and what what it could mean for the election. And Jay Richards has lessons on how to defend the faith in today's culture. As we reported earlier, the Supreme Court will consider for the first time whether a former president is immune from prosecution for alleged crimes committed while in office. The legal question plunges the start date of a potential trial into question as the country heads into a contentious election season. And joining us now to talk more about this is Derek Muller, professor of law at Notre Dame Law School. Derek, good to see you again. We appreciate it. Um, so tell us what this means. And do you think the Supreme Court agreeing to take up this appeal uh, is an indicator of how it may rule? 
Yeah, it's always hard to know when the court takes a case what direction it means to go. There's no question that uh, the former president of the United States being criminally charged and facing charges is a major deal. It's a major question. And even though it uh, might have been resolved one way in the District of Columbia Circuit Court that said he had no immunity, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean the Supreme Court's going to reverse. It might mean they want to infirm because it's such a significant issue. But at the same time, I think it bodes at least somewhat uh, promising for Trump's campaign, given the fact that the court is willing to at least hear him out and consider the arguments. Yeah, let's talk about this timeline now. Um, Fast-tracked a little bit, but obviously not fast um, as fast as probably a prosecution once. How could this potentially impact former President Trump when it comes to his bid for the White House? All right, so this trial was scheduled to begin sometime in early March. Um, that date is obviously going to be put on hold. Uh, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments in the case in late April. It should issue a decision by the end of June. Um, but that's a very quick turnaround to try to then send it back, assuming that he's not immune or doesn't have immunity. Uh, to send it back and try to have a criminal trial proceed ahead of the election. So on the one hand, I think it's good news for Trump's campaign that there's a little bit of a delay here. But at the same time, there's a high degree of uncertainty in the months ahead, and we might be facing a criminal trial heading into the November election. Derek, what type of impact um, does this case have on Trump's other pending lawsuits, if at all? Yeah, so part of the thing about this particular case is that it deals with official acts while he was president. So things that happened in 2020 or in the run-up to January 6th, 2021, about interfering with the election and things like that. Other cases that are pending in the United States that are dealing with his business dealings as a businessman or that are dealing with the records he retained after he left office in Florida, probably not as directly implicated. But there's no question that to the extent there are other cha charges lingering out there or questions about prosecutors thinking about still bringing more charges, it could have an effect to the extent they're looking back at his presidency and wondering what else they might bring charges for. Yeah. And speaking of other cases, uh, today, former President Trump appealed a judge's ruling to take him off the Illinois primary ballot over his alleged role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. What more do you know about this? Yeah, so the Illinois Election Board had allowed him to appear on the ballot, but that was appealed to a district court judge in Illinois. Uh, the district court kept him off the ballot. And so that's a that's the third state after Maine and Colorado that has kept him off the ballot. And the United States Supreme Court heard oral argument in early February on the Colorado case about whether his name should appear on the ballot. Um, we've all been expecting a decision any day now, but the court has taken more than three weeks and we're waiting to see what it has to say about uh, the ability of states to keep a candidate off the ballot like they're doing for Trump. Well, Derek, thank you so much for coming on again and weighing in. We always appreciate it. Thank you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, Holy Week with the Holy Father. The Vatican releases Pope Francis's schedule heading into Easter. Plus, we talked to Jay Richards about his new book on defending faith and values. Welcome back. The Vatican has released the Holy Father's schedule for Holy Week and Easter. He will participate in service on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, the Easter Vigil, and Easter Sunday Mass. The Vatican also said this morning the Holy Father is feeling better following his bout with flu-like symptoms and even participated in a number of audiences at the Vatican. Human rights experts backed by the United Nations are accusing Nicaragua's government of abuses similar 
to crimes against humanity. The findings were released today. The experts examined the crackdown in Nicaragua since March 2022. One says the Central American country is, quote, caught in a spiral of violence. The country's president, Daniel Ortega, has targeted opposition and civilians, including the Catholic Church University students and indigenous and black Nicaraguans. Well, a new book is calling for a unity of faith and reason to take a stand against what it says are ever more godless and irrational cultural elites. Fight the Good Fight is co-written by Jay Richards of the Heritage Foundation and Life Today TV host James Robinson. The book says that it provides a roadmap for those who love God, family, and honest public debate to defend the country's Judeo-Christian roots. We recently spoke with one of the authors. And co-author Jay Richards joins us now. Jay, great to have you back on the show. Uh, First, tell us why you decided to write this book and why now? Yeah, honestly, James and I I wrote a book in 2012 called Indivisible, and we thought maybe we'll just sort of reissue that. But, you know, we looked at the situation and thought we're in a different universe in 2024 than we are, uh, you know, we're in 2012. I mean, the reality is those social conservatives, those of us defending life and marriage and religious liberty, we were feeling isolated, felt like the Republican Party and conservatives were trying to kind of throw us out of the, the big tent. Well, now we're in this moment in which the official elite and kind of public view denies things that everyone thought they knew just from reason alone. So the existence of males and females. And I've discovered from my work fighting gender ideology over the last few years that the the whole situation politically and culturally is different. So that lots of people that would have been on the opposite side of these political and cultural debates a few years ago suddenly find themselves as allies. And Jay, a main part of your book is a chapter called Male in female, he created them. And in it, you call gender ideology one of the worst ideas of our time. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I would say it's basically all the terrible ideas you can think of from the 19th and 20th century boiled down into a single issue that directly targets the foundation of civilization. The fact that it takes a male and a female, both fertile, to reproduce, to have children. That's the foundation of civilization. Gender ideology denies that. It says, okay, this idea of biological sex, that doesn't really apply to human beings. What we really are is this internal sense of gender. And sex is just something that's assigned to us at birth by our doctors. Yeah, also uh, in defending the right of Christians to worship God in public, I know you use the example from the Gospels of Jesus and the coin with the face of Mm. Caesar on it. Tell us a little bit more about that one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is anybody that's following the news notices that basically any ordinary belief that almost any American had until about 30 years ago is now called Christian nationalism, the idea that you say you could bring your faith to the public square, or that we're created in the image of God and that's where we get our rights. This is a perennial and bipartisan idea that's as common to John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan as it would be to Martin Luther King. All of a sudden, this is sort of a radical idea. The truth of the matter is, is that the very idea of separation of these realms of the state and the church. It's actually a Christian idea originally, as Jesus articulates in the Gospels when he, you know, he's challenged, uh, okay, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And what does he say? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. In other words, there are these legitimately different jurisdictions uh, saying that the church and the state should be separate, however, is does not mean that we can't bring our faith and our religious beliefs into politics in the public square. Yeah, and in the book, you also offer advice on how not to apply one's faith to politics. So how and why should we keep our faith and political beliefs separate? 
Well, I mean, honestly, none of us want, I think, certainly no serious Christian wants the federal government here in Washington, D.C. We don't want the Congress debating the nature of the sacraments or baptism or these kinds of things, right? That's just not the legitimate jurisdiction of the state. What is the legitimate jurisdiction of the state? Well, those things that we know publicly, and that includes a lot of moral truth. So we believe that you shouldn't should kill innocent people uh, uh, sort of irrespective of the details. We shouldn't violate people's rights based on the color of their skin. That's certainly a theological belief I hold as a Catholic, but it's also something that people know by reason. That's the legitimate jurisdiction of the state and of the federal and the state governments. And so teasing these things out is sort of complicated, but actually if you just look at American history, Americans didn't have a problem doing this, bringing their faith to the public square while still insisting that people have religious freedom. It's only in this kind of hyper-secularized moment we're in, in which all vestiges of faith are supposed to be purged from the public square, that suddenly these ideas are controversial. Jay, almost out of time here, but quickly, what do you hope people get from reading your book and where can they get it? They get the book absolutely anywhere. And honestly, what we hope is, first of all, that Christians will learn to work together rather than sniping at each other, but also that those of us that are religious and social conservatives will reach out to former liberals and even people that still think of themselves as liberals, but believe in reason and common sense and to see them as potential allies rather than adversaries. Well, Jay, great to have you back on and congratulations on the new book. We appreciate Thanks, you coming on again. God bless. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.